Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of Black Girls Have Anxiety 2, the safe space created for black women by black women to strip away the taboo of talking about mental health. You'll hear from mental health professionals and advocates as well as black women sharing their experiences as we break down the complexities, explore ways to heal and support each other. My name is Ashley, I'm your host. Whether you're a seasoned regular or this is your first time tuning in, thank you so much for your support. Now let's get into today's episode. All right. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Black Girls Have Anxiety 2. This is your host, Ashley. And thanks so much for coming back for another episode. Today, we have one of our favorite guests that we always have on the show, which is Dr. San Stevens. She is awesome. And I'm just going to let her introduce introduce herself for anybody that hasn't um, heard an episode where she's been dropping some knowledge for us. Hello, Miss Ashley and to the Black Girls Have Anxiety 2 audience. I'm so happy to be here. My name is Dr. San Stevens, a licensed psych- psychologist in the state of Florida. I've been practicing for almost 10 years working with um, individuals across the developmental lifespan, primarily with children, adolescents, and families, but certainly over the latter years I've been specializing and working with older adults. So that is um, an area of interest, a deep area of passion and interest. Uh, more also recently, I've been working more so in research in terms of developing some trauma interventions for um, Black youth and their parents in order to find ways to certainly strengthen their sources of support. And then, of course, um, my organization, along with two of my other um, colleagues and best friends, where we focus on and work with poor women of color in the Northeast um, Florida area, particularly Jacksonville, in the areas of legal advocacy, mental health, and certainly job and educational advocacy, bringing all those areas together in order to certainly support and help propel and motivate these wonderful group of women and young girls. Thank you for having me again, I should say too. Yes, of course, of course. Thanks for being on the, on the podcast. I always love it when you join us. So I today we're going to be talking about something I think we've both been wanting to talk about for a while now, which is um, medication within the mental health realm. Like, what does that look like? So, there's so many questions about it. There's so many fears around it. I know I've got a lot of questions about it, but that is what we're going to be talking about today is the medications that can come with or be prescribed to people that are um, dealing with mental illness or diagnosed with mental disorders. But before we get into the serious stuff, we are going to do a quick two minute quick fire question uh, with Dr. Stevens. So I'm going to set my timer and then Dr. Stevens it's just a bunch of random questions. Just say the first thing that comes to mind. There's no right or wrong answer, but we're going to go through for two minutes and then, yeah, just kind of see what we get. And then we'll hop into the serious stuff. Okay. All right. You ready, Dr. Stevens? I'm ready. All right. Two minutes starts now. All right. What's your favorite city? Oh, as in Chicago, New Orleans. <laughs> Chicago, New Orleans. <laughs> Okay, yeah, texting or talking? Okay, <laughs> <laughs> okay um, texting or talking? Talking, talking definitely. Um, what's the last song that you listened to? <laughs> oh, um, <laughs> what's 
number one birthday song? Oh, wait, no, I'm sorry. What, what's that number one uh, what's that birthday song from uh, Stevie Wonder? <laughs> oh, happy birthday to that one? Happy birthday. Yes. Yes. Um, <laughs> Um, okay. Would you rather be able to speak every language in the world or be able to talk to animals? Speak every language in the world. Okay. Okay. All right. Do you prefer cake or donuts? Cake. Cake. Um, what's your favorite food? Fried rice. Okay. Uh, what is the first concert you ever went to? Oh, Miami Boys. Okay. <laughs> At Skate City in Jacksonville. <laughs> um, if you had to eat one thing for dinner for the rest of your life, what would you eat? Oh, um, maybe paella. Oh, paella. Paella is good. Okay. That's it for that round. Thanks for playing that game with me. Um, we are going to go into the focus on this episode, which is medication and talking about medication that's used for mental illness. So like, let's just kind of start with the basics. Like, what do you call medicine, you know, that's used for mental illnesses? Well, it has a pretty simple name um, and it's called it's basically psychotropic or psychiatric drugs, um, you know, and it more so just speaks to a specific class of drugs that um, works on the or addresses the behavioral and the emotional aspects of a person's psychosocial well-being. Okay. So th- when we think about like drugs, like, um, I don't know, like Valium or Xanax, are those psychotropic drugs? They are, they are, and those are specific. So, of course, like we always do, we we have specific uh, subclassifications of psychotropic or psychiatric drugs. Um, there are multiple classes of, of drugs, but I'll focus on just like the four um, primarily. So we have our anti-anxiety or anxiolytic drugs, which are Valium, Diazepam, um, Xanax, benzodiazepines, those are medications that work on anxiety. We have antipsychotics, which are the drugs that we typically use to treat individuals who have schizophrenia or um, thought disorders in terms of delusions, um, hallucinations. We have um, our mood stabilizers. And the mood stabilizers, that includes a host of drugs. That includes our antineuroleptics, or our anti-seizure drugs, which work quite well with as a mood stabilizer, primarily for like bipolar disorder. So lithium, carbamazepine, um, let's see, lorazidone, like there are a whole class of mood stabilizers. And then of course we have like the more popular antidepressant drugs, right? And antidepressant drugs, those are typically Sometimes also uses anti-anxiety, but well, that's how they started. But we saw they're pretty effective as a uh, uh, anti um, to address uh, depression. And these include certainly Prozac, um, certainly um, citalopram or Celexa. So these are a massive class of drugs again to address depression. And then, of course, like I said, we have other subclasses, but those are the four primary ones that. 
I think most of our audience would be familiar with. You talked about like there's different classes of medication, some for anxiety, some for depression. Um, There's a huge range, but as far as who prescribes these, like who, who's allowed to prescribe these particular type of drugs? So we have um, primarily like uh, medical doctors. So the most classically well and thoroughly trained uh, medical doctors are psychiatrists. And these are individuals who go to school primarily to understand the mechanism of the drug, how it affects bodily systems. And along with that, they are typically certified in being able to prescribe um, and to treat drug use in drug use in terms of psychotropic drug use and in more extreme parts of our population with young children and with older adults where we typically see that there are so many changes that happen in their body and those typically resp- require very specialized certifications so the most thoroughly trained are psychiatrists and of course depending on your age you'll you'll want to have someone who is a geriatric psychiatrist or specializes working with geriatrics so older adults or pediatrician psychiatrists but one of the problems that there is a major dearth of psychiatrists one um, because um, it's not attracting as many of um, residents or residential fellows into the psychiatric rotations so they're going to a more higher paying um, fellowships, residencies, and such. So it's turning out a lot fewer individuals. Of course, it turns out a lot fewer, and so you don't necessarily have those individuals who are specialized. So the next class would be certainly a general practitioner. And the general practitioner, your primary care provider, they are actually the ones who more often prescribe psychotropic medications because they're very accessible. You don't necessarily need if certainly more times than not, you're going to use your insurance. You don't necessarily need um, a um, referral in order to see your general practitioner. And they're more, more times than not comfortable prescribing um, medication. So the medical provider. And then certainly along with that, depending on the state where you're located, you could either have a PA. So that's a physician assistant or ARNOP. A-R-N-P. So basically a advanced registered nurse practitioner. And these are individuals with advanced knowledge, certainly beyond like a, um, your standard educated nurse or certainly your um, just, I should say, medical professional, not necessarily medical doctor. Individuals who certainly achieve typically the master, sometimes a doctorate level of education in order to prescribe specialized medication to this population. So you can have psychiatric PAs, psychiatric ANRPs, and of course then you have your general ARNPs and your general PAs. In six states, actually, um, we also have psychologists, medical psychologists or prescribing psychologists are allowed to prescribe psychotropic medications. And depending on the state, there are limitations in terms of the types of medications or drugs that they can prescribe. So those top four psychiatrists, practitioners, PAs, ANRPs, are, those are the typical ones that most people go to in order to seek counsel and if they should decide to go that route. Prescription. I, I definitely did not know that um, that a PA can prescribe you um, right. you know, this type of medication. I had no clue. I thought it was only psychiatrists. So that's really interesting. Um, what, what are some... Uh, so... 
Can you kind of talk us through how these particular medications affect your brain? I know that each one probably affects it differently, but in general, like what does it change within your brain? Right. So it it really does depend on the class of medications um, and certainly the mechanism of action, right? So most drugs, so like if we just took like really a very general approach to that, we would see that certainly like what happens is that it happens at the synaptic level. If you remember back to your biology class, right? You know, so we see the signal for the cell body, so from the dendrites along the axon, and of course from the axon to the synapses, right? At the synapses is where that right electrical chemical pulse it propagates, right? So that electrical charge goes down the axon as it goes down the axon, right? So that's action potential. What we see is that certain drugs potentiates means that it induces increased the likelihood of this this um, chemical electric message being conducted. And so it conducts, right, from synapse to synapse. And it doesn't just travel over. It does like a little hop <laughs> because there's a little tiny cleft or a little tiny space in between. And so what happens is that these drugs induces the likelihood of that jumping, right, the likelihood of the firing. So, but that's really at the acute level. Now, what happens is that when you have like a mass number similar to, um, so you have this, you know, some of the snaps, but also you have to remember that there's a lock and key mechanism, right? And so there are receptor sites, meaning that, so in terms of like where the drug itself is the key and then the receptor site is the lock. So depending on the drug itself, it fits a good enough fit, it will maintain that binding. Does that make sense? And so, again, this is at the subacute level, meaning that you don't necessarily feel those effects, but it's happening on certainly this uh, microscopic level. So you have synaptic signaling, the receptor transporter regulation that's happening all along this. And then on top of it, and then over time, we start to see intracellular signaling. So, right, so there's massive effects across all of these cells that are happening. And then it's translating this message to say, when this drug comes into the system, this is what needs to happen. So it's starting to have a cascade of signals that are being sent. That's one of the reasons why, you know, certainly it's important that people take medication at the same time as prescribed. Because one, our bodies, again, you know, we talk about a lot of rules, right? Or we talk about a few rules. One rule is that our bodies love and crave homeostasis or routine. And so one of the things that we can do in order to facilitate that process is to take that drug or medication at the same time every day. Because, again, you want to prepare your body for this mechanism of action that you told it to expect. So over time, what happens is that our genes start to respond. Our genes start to change in the sense of when this drug activation happens, those subacute changes, the gene expression happens. And guess what? We start to have changes in our brain on a more massive level. So like where you start to actually feel better, 
you start to maybe experience less anxiety. Maybe you still have some of the depressive ruminations, but it doesn't have the same weight to it. You know, it doesn't change the circumstance, the context, but the salience in which uh, we attach to it changes because of that mechanism of action. Now, that's more so like uh, so, antidepressants and stabilizers. I'm sorry, please. Oh, no, no, keep going. <laughs> Okay, I'm sorry. Okay, all right. So basically, so 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 that happens more so with antidepressants and mood stabilizers. In terms of anxiety medications or um, anxiolytics, what we see is that this mechanism of action is really um, it's a little bit harder to describe. In the sense that we see that um, anxiolytics they bind in the central nervous system, right? They bind the central nervous system, and then they often find these receptor sites, very similar to certainly like mood stabilizers and depressants. They find these receptor sites and they tend to clench. And depending on the type of receptor, they clench pretty quickly, which is one of the reasons why anti-anxiety medications, especially short-acting ones like Xanax, are very addictive because they provide immediate relief quickly. So they attach quickly and they bind tightly very quickly. And so this binding potentiates the the transport of these ions. And so again, we have the locking mechanism and certainly in to provide relief. So it's a, a little bit of a simpler process in terms of, you know, compared to our mood stabilizers and, and our antidepressants. So that is, that's super interesting. I didn't, I, I, and I remember some of that biology in some classes from from college, and I remember the synapses and all of that information. But I, I guess, yeah, it's really interesting that Xanax, things like Xanax, you say, work really fast, whereas I know there are certain medications where you've got to take them for like a couple of weeks before you actually start to feel any effect. Um, but for somebody that may be taking medication, or maybe there's somebody out there that um, you know, maybe they've seen a psychiatrist and they've been prescribed medication, but they're scared to take it and they don't know what to expect. You know, what can they expect, you know, as far as when to expect changes based on um, different medications? And then once they see those changes, is it time to stop taking it or do they need to keep taking it like as prescribed by their doctor? So very much the latter answer, right? Because one, we see that you know, again, like going back to the first example of how mood stabilizers and antidepressants work, that it takes at least and more often than not, at least two months for people to feel like true effects. Right. So what happens with particularly antidepressants, there's an activating effect. This activating effect makes people feel really charged up, like they feel they feel really good immediately. And, you know, certainly there are some things that happen on the intracellular level that um, contributes to this almost anxiety-like feeling that people, you know, especially if they've been through the throes of depression, feel really good for them because they start to feel like even better. So that first two weeks, it creates this false equivalency, right? This, 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 this false feeling of this medication is working for me immediately. And then after the second week, they go down. Right. So they start to plateau. They're like, this drug is not working for me anymore. 
but that's a normal effect of the antidepressant. That's the initial activating effect of the medication coming into your system and a cascade of signals that are happening. A cascade of signals, again, creates the activating effect, but then you'll start to um, encounter certainly this plateau. And that's normal. And once you start experience that plateau, but remember that's a sub-acute level that we talked about, where we start to see, well, not see with the naked eye, of course, but these changes are happening on the microscopic level that we can't necessarily quantify, we can't necessarily see. But it's making changes um, physiologically, it's making changes certainly within our brain. And so between, say, week three and week eight, that's when the real changes are occurring. Thing about it though is that more often than not, it's important that you're attending therapy during this time. Because part of the, the magic or, or the benefit of medication is that it makes um, daily life much more palpable. Like you're able to certainly understand and process what people are saying. Uh, maybe, you know, you have uh, increased social support being able to receive the support that they're providing you, being able to certainly take the lessons from psychotherapy or, or the insights from psycho psychotherapy, being able to ponder those, process those, apply them. Because again, the weight that's typically associated with uh, depressive ruminations, some of that weight has been lifted. And so during these, like uh, actually day one until week eight, the whole idea is that you are learning these different skills and to the extent that you can, you're using behavioral activation. Like, so using like successive approximation, using tiny little steps in order to shape your behavior in order to obtain that desired result. So that by week eight, when the medication really starts to work, you're really, you know, putting more concerted effort toward your goals. And certainly we can make that case for certainly mood stabilizers, for antidepressants, for anxiolytics or anti-anxiety medications, you start to feel those effects immediately. You know, and so that's one of the reasons why a lot of medical professionals tend not to prescribe uh, short-term anxiolytics. They maybe provide uh, long-term anxiolytic medications like benzodiazepine. So it has the same effect of, of, of addressing anxiety, but it doesn't have that immediate effects of activating and certainly um, reducing certainly the, the effects of, of anxiety over the short term in such a quick way. Now, one thing that I will mention, you know, along with the antidepressants is that because it takes so long for people to start to experience some of the feelings and depending on certainly the severity of the depression, oftentimes my, uh, medical professionals Professionals, after that two weeks, they'll pres prescribe a long-term acting benzodiazepine in order to help those individuals to help, like, to manage some of the um, more severe forms of depression, maybe the psychomotor retardation, the fatigue, um, you know, certainly through close monitoring, the suicidal ideation, if there's been a history of suicide attempts. So in order to help to propel and to appropriately activate these individuals. But again, that long-acting benzodiazepine is provided over the short term. So maybe week three to week eight, or maybe even over a shorter term, maybe even two weeks, you know, until they really start to feel the effects of the, of the antidepressant. 
So as far as if somebody is taking this medication and, you know, let's say they've been on it for a really long time, whether it be like six months or a year, or maybe they've been on it for a couple of years and they decide, you know, my life is really, is going well. I really like how I feel. And maybe they're like, well, how can I, I don't want to take medication anymore um, for whatever reason it may be. So what is that? Is there like a tapering off process that they have to go through with their doctor or are there some medications that you have to take for life for certain disorders? Well, I think one, it's important to talk to your provider, your medical provider, in order to figure out what the best course is. Because like you say, a lot of times we'll decide that we're feeling good. We think we can do these things. And I think it's important for us to certainly take the in, the advice and insight from um, learned others in order to make that decision. But certainly, um, if you all decide that tapering or coming off that medication is ideal, more medications than not, you know, have to be tapered off gradually. Even antidepressants, there are certain medications that because of their long half-life, meaning in terms of how long they stay in your system, you can't just abruptly take it out of your because it'll often cause, um, you know, depending on certainly if you have like pre-existing medical conditions, it can certainly activate those pre-existing medical conditions or certainly could um, cause certainly a life-threatening medical event as well. Very much the case with anxiolytics and certainly antipsychotics and mood stabilizers. Most of those medications have to be tapered off very carefully and slowly titrated down because of certainly um, the amount that's in your system, how it is, how it has affected your bodily systems, and then um, you know making sure that certainly they're monitoring any other medical issues. Um, and so, so done under the close supervision of a medical prof- professional, it can be done. Now, is it a good idea to do it, right? I think, you know, it often does depend on how well um, you're able to certainly manage these multiple stressors, um, being able to manage some of the challenges that people, you know, encounter in day-to-day life or being able to um, manage some of the hormonal or changes that occur um, chemically um, in our brain. And and so all of these changes are really hard to predict. And so that's one of the benefits of medication. You know, so for some individuals, medication, you know, is a lifelong part of their routine, just as, you know, a person would take uh, vitamins, you know, if you use that example and they, um, you know, that this is a vitamin that I just need to take. And other for others, it's more critical and much more acute in the sense of, that is more likened to um, cancer treatment in a sense of, okay, you know, I have to take it at this potency or this strength for this many days or this many months, more times months. And then after a certain while, you know, I can taper off and do maybe a low level medication in terms of like maintenance. So breakthrough and then maintenance over time. And then maybe during certain periods, they may increase, you know, in order to manage, say, um, certain stressors, let's say, you know, you recognize the, the certain events that happen in your life that you do need more medication for. And so maybe working with your medical professional, you'll start to certainly increase your medication around those particular um, circumstances and then 
taper back down. So there are a lot of um, opportunities for um, tapering and certainly modulating the medication, depending on, you know, what works best. Okay. So as when it comes to the, the medication, I know you mentioned like a couple of, you know, of course, side effects that could happen, but as far as like the positive effects, just kind of general feeling, I know, of course, there's antidepressants, anti-anxiety medications, there's quite a few different types of medication. But um, as far as positive effects, can you mention like a few, you know, uh, mental health disorders and then the positive effects that you can feel depending on um, the medication that they give you? I think most immediately, relief of distress, right? So for most people, you know, who experience um, psychological distress, they just want that negative feeling to end, you know? And so with medication, I think one of the most enduring effects is the fact that it does provide some individuals with relief or maybe not complete relief, which, you know, I don't, um, it's not necessarily the goal of medication, but it does lessen the burden of some of the psychological distress. Um, some other um, benefits that other people may see um, as not so positive, like I say, one man's tra- trash is another man's treasure. For some people, it causes weight gain, especially for some individuals who have trouble like maintaining and keeping weight. Like you, you think it's, you know, but, you know, certainly that's a medication that we often use, um, you know, so we used it for its intended purpose, but also for some of our individuals who had trouble eating, right? So it was an appetite stimulant. So it induces weight gain. And then on the opposite, for certain medications, it induces weight loss, right? So one of the benefits, so it has this intended therapeutic right. effect, but it also um, is appetite suppressant for some individuals. Um, you know, so for some individuals. And I think along with that, some drugs induce drowsiness, right? Which helps induce sleep for some people who experience like chronic sleep impairment or insomnia. Um, And so it really does help them, you know, in order to address like other areas that may be problematic for them. Okay. So what are, what are some of the side effects? Cause I know that I've heard, and I know we've had people on the podcast that have talked about um, their experiences with medication, some having really good experiences, some talking a lot about different side effects that can happen from like stomach issues to like lowered sex drive or, you know, like breaking out, different things like that. So what are some of the side effects, like possible side effects from these medications? Right. So, um, you know, I think pretty common, you know, in, in that just more so, is because of where the medications break down at, right? In terms of like our liver, either our liver or our kidney, right? So we oftentimes we have GI distress, right? So GI distress in terms of maybe constipation or diarrhea or just general distress, right? So just discomfort in your um, in your GI or, or stomach area. Uh, for some people, they experience dizziness, drowsiness, um, first loss of balance, confusion, you know, certainly from the from the cascade of signals, possibly um, some memory issues. Some people experience like low blood pressure, right? Because it's a constriction of those blood vessels and then reduced breathing. Um, depending on the um, medications like antidepressants and antipsychotics, it creates like dry mouth, right? Cotton mouth, 
it feels like you have constantly have cotton in your mouth, which is not a very comfortable feeling. So people oftentimes like they're drinking water all the time in order to relieve that feeling, right? And then of course for our older population, it's problematic for them because you know they are fall risk. So if they're going to the restroom, especially if they are um you know, continent that they're going to the restroom all the time that increases the risk of them hitting their head. So that creates like an additional um, cause of concern. Vomiting, again, like a sort of GI issue, poor sleep, some weight gain, and then of course, like the sexual disorders um, in terms of problems with libido, you know, for women and for men. Um, I think some other effects of medication is agitation right so you become like much more agitated a lot more acutely aware of things that annoy you um and then some appetite issues and so i think typically those are some of the more common side effects of psychotropic medications and most of the times like those modulated or managed to like taper on and off uh, medication in terms of like increasing or certainly decreasing the the dosage and so you can sometimes manage the side effects that way okay so as far as we've talked about the side effects we've talked a little bit about the benefits of course and then um, I know that there are this for some medications. There's a little bit of like a gray area between not gray area, but there's there can be a really small gray area from uh, medication for treatment to abusing the medication. So where does that like line? Like where is that line between um, treatment and moving towards addiction or misuse? That's a really good question. Um, and, and I really do think it goes back to the intended use and how it's prescribed, right? So one, in terms of the intended use, are you using it, especially if you're given like PRN directions and basically that means as needed. You're truly using it when you need it, right? You're not overusing it. You're not using it just because, or you're not using it. I think that, you know, it may cause, this thing may, you know, cause me some um, distress, but, you know, certainly using it in a way in order to mitigate um, the psychological distress, which typically um, is the reason that we use um, anxiolytics. So for the intended use, and then in terms of using it, how it's prescribed, in terms of how the medical professional um, instructs us to use the medication. Because the idea is that these medications are titrated or prescribed based on your age in terms of your purported body chemistry, in terms of your race, in terms of your gender, your body weight. All of these factors are are accounted for in terms of the medication, the dosage, in terms of the free fields that you receive. All of that's taken into account and designed specifically for you. So... Within society in general, there is a stigma, of course, around taking psychotropic medications um, for your mental health. And of course, as we know, there's this is even more pronounced in the Black community. It, do you, from your experience in the field, do you kind of have any ideas as to why that may be, um, particularly for us? Well, very much so. I mean, I think it goes back to, you know, our podcast where we talked about like some of um, the hesitancies and distrust around medical professionals, 
you know, that there's a history of distrust institutionally and certainly um, personally, right? So you know plenty of stories, you, you know, certainly being the general, you know plenty of stories of, you know, individuals who were mistreated by medical professionals, but more importantly, you know personal stories. And maybe certainly you yourself have been a victim, you know, of the medical racism, you know, and so that's not an altogether or unfamiliar uh, feeling, you know, and so I think one of the natural hesitancies, the expected response is distrust of this system that has had no vested interest in me, and now why is it that you want to give me this medication that's supposed to work, you know, and so there's a distrust, a mistrust in terms of, well, if you're willing to give me this, then what's wrong with it? And so, you know, I think one of the ways that it's internalized and externalized in our society, particularly in Black uh, society, is that, well, how, how do we best manage that? Is to say that it's an alien, right? Meaning that it's more so something that is foreign is not necessarily something that's natural it's not necessarily something that's meant for our bodies and so again just a way in order to distance ourselves from this medication and certainly it's purported therapeutic effects and so that's another way in which we go about seemingly trying to protect you know ourselves and our loved ones but in all honesty you know we end up doing a lot more disservice to our family, friends, and loved ones because of some purporting or more so supporting this system of of distrust without necessarily considering and thinking about the evidence. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's so much there's so much for us to learn. Um, but like you said, a lot of it has to do with the mistrust. But I think that for me especially, I think it always helps seeing someone that looks like me um, you know, that is my prof- provider or medical professional. Um, it helps give you a little bit more trust and maybe think that that racial disparity is not necessarily occurring in that interaction. And yeah, I, I don't know if that's everybody's opinion. I know for me personally, that's kind of um, important for me. But I think, you know, like you're saying, if we kind of put these things to the side and we don't take advantage of the medicine that's there, um, it could definitely lead to more harm in the, at the end of the day. It does. And if I could just share a really quick story with you, you know, um, in the sense that, um, you know, I've worked, I've had a history of working with a family who has a long, long history of untreated and undertreated psychiatric problems. Right. And so it starts to the third generation where um, this um, is the maternal, I guess the third degree maternal figure never received treatment and um, family members just more so treated her at home in terms of, you know, someone's there always to watch her, to take care of her, right? But as we know with psychiatric disorders, it has a heritability factor, meaning that it's Depending on the actual disorder, it has a strong um, likelihood of being passed down generationally. And so it hit the second degree relatives, right? So 
aunts and uncles, her offspring. And then the grandchildren. And that same attitude of undertreatment or no treatment has affected the family to the extent that um, more so the grandchildren are the ones who are receiving the treatment now. But you know, certainly they're a little bit older, like mid-teens or so. And they say the aunts and the uncles who have not received treatment, they've either you know had to be treated in long-term residential uh, psychiatric units or they've been detained in jail and they're receiving their primary care, psychiatric care through the jail system. You know, and I think it's, you know, certainly that's a really blunt example. I'm not necessarily saying that that happens to every family, you know, but I think that's just one of the consequences of how, you know, sometimes, you know, in our way to protect family, we may end up harming, you know, our families. And so it's really important for us to, Sometimes I step outside of ourselves and I think about, okay, you know, what makes a sense? What makes sense for the good of the family? And sometimes it means, you know, stepping outside of our stated traditions and doing something different. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, all right. So Dr. Stevens, we've talked about medication. We've talked about, you know, the benefits, the potential side effects, and, you know, of course, what that looks like in our community. So for somebody that's listening to this episode that has, you know, maybe they've taken the step to go to therapy. Um, maybe they do have some of those generational traits of illnesses that may be undiagnosed and maybe they're experiencing the same thing um, and have been suggested by medical professionals to see a psychiatrist, but they've always been hesitant, whether it be fear um, or distrust of the medical system. Um, If you could speak to that person directly, what would you say to that person um, looking to make that step into uh, seeing a psychiatrist and potentially medication? I would tell them that you deserve love and you deserve to be or to receive the best care available to you. And if that means going to a psychiatrist or to your primary care doctor in order to get it, that's okay. And it doesn't change the essence of who you are. You're still a beautiful, you are a beautiful and loved individual. And, you know, certainly some of the challenges that we experience are normal and normative, right? And sometimes we need supplements, sometimes we need reinforcements in order to help us. And having, expanding our support system just makes that buttress that much stronger. Because one of, one of the things that happens is that when we don't receive those, those supports or those buffers, the system is breached. And not only system is breached, but it makes those breaches wider and it lets more in. And so we're not designed to do this all alone. We don't, we're not born into this world alone, but we always have certainly support and help. And there's nothing wrong with having support and help for that support. Yes. Thank you for that, Dr. Stevens. And um, as always, I want to wrap this episode up with, you know, a question about affirmations. So, for the rest of this year, we're almost to the end of 2021 and a lot has happened. Like it's, I feel like we're still kind of in 2020, like it's 2020 and a half, but (laughs) for the rest of this year, what affirmation would you give yourself? I'm love. I am deserving of love and I deserve the best. 
just that simple. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you so much. Um, this has been a, another great conversation, Dr. Stevens. <laughs> I think that every time you come onto the podcast, we just get more and more really great information and a lot of things that you know, generally we have questions about, but maybe we haven't asked anybody or had somebody to ask. Um, I love that you're able to be that source of knowledge for us. So I just want to say thank you again for joining us. Um, this has been another good episode. Thank you again for having me again. Thank you so much for making this platform available to all your listeners. It's invaluable. Thank you, Dr. Stevens. Well, thank you to Dr. Stevens and thank you to everybody that tuned into this episode. I hope that you enjoyed it. Um, feel free to follow us on Instagram. Let me know your thoughts about the episode. Any suggestions for any new episode topics, feel free to let me know. You can follow us at inst- on Instagram at Black Girls Have Anxiety 2. Um, and then if you want to get in touch with Dr. Stevens, I will put her information in the description below. Um, yeah. Thanks for joining us for another episode. Thank you, Dr. Stevens. And we will talk to you all soon. Have a great day. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Black Girls Have Anxiety 2. No matter where you are in the world, I really appreciate your support. See you again on the next episode, but until then, follow us on Instagram at Black Girls Have Anxiety 2 and on Twitter at Anxious Black Girls. That's Anxious BLK Girls. And remember, just because you're struggling doesn't mean you have to struggle in silence. The more we talk about it, the more we heal. <laughs>